we are actually finishing the book of First Peter. Uh, I, I heard like one little woohoo. That's uh, I'll take it. Um, it's to me this is monumental, and it's actually actually really one of these things that I could not have like planned if I tried it. But we are actually, according to the church calendar, we are two years to the day of when I began this series in First Peter. Which is, yeah, just very providential. It was, it was the fifth Sunday of Lent, 2020, when I started this thing, uh, back when we were all young and innocent. And uh, now here we are, 2022, fifth Sunday of Lent, and we are putting, putting the cap on it. So, all that said, uh, praise God, and let us hear together God's word, the, the final three verses of this epistle. God's word says this. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, thank you uh, for this time that we've had already to gather together, to be uh, in your presence, to sing your praises, to reflect on your truth. Um, God, thank you for what you've done in our hearts, and we pray that you continue your good work in us, the work that you have promised to bring to completion one day uh, through this time in, in the scriptures. In Jesus' name, be glorified, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So, friends, tonight, first of all, how's the temp in the room? We're, okay, we're good. I think, I think we had some people turning into popsicles earlier, so I think we, we've evened it out a little bit, so we're good. Okay, so, uh, friends, church, as we look together at these final three verses of 1 Peter tonight, I want us to reflect together on what it means to stand firm, to stand firm in God's grace. We see this command from Peter at the end of verse 12 of our text that we just read together. It's one of the final closing exhortations, the, the final commands and words of instruction that Peter gives in this letter. And so we see what he says in verse 12. He says a, a little bit to kind of intro it, and then he says, This is the true grace of God, so stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. So for me, as I was thinking about this this week, the, the image uh, that came to my mind as I was thinking about what it means to stand firm, uh, I thought of, of this, this picture, this idea of one who is uh, keeping both feet firmly planted on the ground. And especially uh, even when and in the midst of turbulence, in the midst of tension, you know, in the midst of taking hits, it's someone who is continuing to have both feet firmly planted, not being moved, not being shaken. For better or worse, uh, you know, I couldn't help but thinking of, you know, standing firm. You know, many of us saw this, uh, this thing on, you know, social media all over the place. You know, this, this slap that's now famous, this hit 
and thinking about how, you know, the person who got hit and how did he take that hit? You know, did he, did he fall backwards or did he stay firm, right? That, that's a picture. For the most part, I think, I think he stood firm, right? He, he, didn't, he didn't completely lose it uh, when he got hit. I, some of you know what I'm talking about. Do we, do we know what I'm talking about? The Oscars, all that? Okay, yeah. So, right, so standing firm, right? Probably the first and last time I will ever reference Chris Rock in a sermon. So, anyway, so I thought of standing firm from that perspective uh, of what, what we saw in our media feeds this week. And, uh, you know, to, to go more biblical and scriptural on this idea, uh, we see this, this idea popping up in other, other places. We see this command to stand that is given by Peter, also this exact same word, exact same verb tense, in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul, in that place, is writing to the saints who are at Ephesus. And in verse 14, Paul says to these saints, he says, uh, stand therefore, same exact word, same command, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. We thought about that exact text a few weeks back when we were talking about, you know, the, the attack of the evil one and the enemy in our lives. And this is, this is Peter, or Paul kind of addressing that. But it starts with this command that we're seeing in Peter here to stand. Uh, again, thinking to, to bring this uh, to our lives and to connect it with things we're seeing and experiencing uh, personally, uh, I had uh, in my mind thinking about the resoluteness of a soldier. I'm thinking about a soldier, yeah, who in, in this context we're talking first century, right? So I was thinking of Roman soldiers who are all decked out in their armaments and their apparel. They're resolute, they're standing firm, right? Two feet firmly planted. And we could contrast that with, with something else that we see, something that is much more wobbly, right? Like a, a little person just learning how to stand, learning how to walk. Not, not, they don't have it all, all together yet. They don't have their sea legs about them or even their, you know, just house legs. They're still figuring it out. And so I think the encouragement that we're seeing in, in the text and from Peter here is that we, sh we should seek to be, by God's grace, those who are more like that Roman soldier than like the wobbly, uh, you know, infant, two-year-old, toddler who's still figuring it out. As I reflect on that, I feel like more often I identify with the toddler, right? And yet, that call in the scriptures, as we see in Peter, as we see in Paul, as we see in other places, is to stand firm, to not be wobbled. The call of discipleship in our lives, both feet firmly planted. And so this leads all, in my mind, to a question. And the question is, what exactly is, you know, we're called, we're called to stand, so what exactly is this true grace of God in which we are supposed to be standing. What is this grace? And I have, uh, from the text and from kind of what's, you know, broadly from Scripture, I have two answers to this question. And one is, is more broad, kind of pulling from, from our verses, but also more broadly in Peter. 
And then the second answer to this question is a little bit more pointed and narrowed uh, to something we see in this text. And so I want to kind of reflect on both of these things for a little bit and then end up kind of landing the plane with a little bit of a, of a how do we do this kind of practical application uh, in, the, in kind of our closing moments together. So if you're still with me, you with me? Nods, okay, good, grunts, grunts are good. Um, uh, we'll, we'll dive in here. So answer one, this, this more broad reality to this question, the question of, okay, what is this true grace that we are supposed to be standing in? And that what, what does Peter have in his mind when he says this? And uh, I think basically the broad answer here is that uh, what Peter has in his mind is essentially everything that he has written in this letter from beginning to end. I think he has in his mind, you know, everything from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to what we're reading here tonight. All of it is a part of this true grace that Peter is wanting us and wanting those he's writing to originally in his first century context to, to reside in, to dwell in, and ultimately to stand in. I think uh, Peter is hinting at this, at least a little bit in verse 12, when he refers to his own writings right before he makes this command. All right, so in, in verse uh, 12, leading up to the command to stand, Peter says, uh, again, I'll read it, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. So, so what is this true grace? Uh, you know, Peter is saying, this is, that this, essentially the stuff that I have been exhorting and proclaiming to you in this letter, all of this stuff, all of these truths, these, these are the things that make up this grace in which we are being called to stand. I, uh, I think, uh, as we kind of track back, you know, this is the final, like I said, the final message in this whole series on First Peter. So as we think about, okay, where have we been in this letter? What are these things that Peter is referring to? And kind of put some flesh on the bones. Like, where have we been as we think about grace in First Peter? What have we seen? And we've seen a lot of grace in First Peter, time and again. And, uh, you know, it's been two years, so some of it might be foggy. So let me, let me remind us of a few of the just highlights and really great moments in 1 Peter that we see the grace of God just writ large. First and foremost, I think of verse 3 of chapter 1, where Peter talks right at the start of, of the nature of being born again as God's children. Uh, Peter writes, he says, uh, it is indeed according to God the Father's, uh, or according to God the Father's great mercy, that he has caused us as his people to be born again. And he, he details it further. He says, what have we been born again to? He says, we've been born again to this living hope, he says. And that this is possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that because of all of this, we then have this incredible inheritance which is being kept for us in heaven, which he describes with these three adjective, adjectives of being imperishable, of being an undefiled inheritance, and of being unfading. Like, that, that's verses 3 through 5, right out of the gates. Do, do we feel the grace? Do we see 
the grace that is being proclaimed here. We can move on just a little bit further in 1 Peter. He talks about uh, in verses 14 through 16, not only, you know, grace that is declared, but Peter talks about grace that is coming as exhortation, like how we are to live. There's a big bit in uh, chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, about our call to be holy, our, our holy calling as people of God. And we see that this is really what we're being called to is actually a kind of family resemblance. And it's all because we have been adopted into the family of God that we are then called to be holy. As, as God our Father is holy, we are to be holy. There's, there's grace in that exhortation, in that calling. Chapter 2, I, I go back and I think of these profound identity markers that Peter gives us, where he's talking about how the people of God are, I don't know if anyone can remember them, I'll, I'll be impressed if you can, but he says, what, the first one is, a, uh, he says, a chosen race. Anyone else, from, what are some of the other things he says there? What was that? A real a royal priesthood, yes, a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. He says, you're a holy nation. It says that we are a people for God's own possession, that we might proclaim his excellencies to the world. And all of that is in contrast with what he says right before in verse 8, of being destined to be those who are disobeying God's word. So you're not those who are destined to disobey God's word. You are those who are called to all of these things. You get to claim these identity markers of being chosen, of being royal by God's grace, of being holy by God's grace, and of being a people who are his by God's grace. Tracked, tracked even further than that, and, and I think there's even, I would argue, there is grace in the hard things that we've seen in this letter. There's grace. We saw a lot of uh, hard callings that Peter has detailed as he's gone along, things, th things that we've struggled through. We, we talked about the word that Peter gives, the instructions that Peter gives to servants in chapter 2, the instructions that he gives to wives in chapter 3 and to husbands, some profoundly challenging callings and, and instructions there that we saw. The, the challenge of the calling to be citizens who are subject to civil authorities. He talked about all these things in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And yet in the midst of all of this, he, Je, uh, not Jesus, Peter is pointing us back to the Jesus who has suffered for us. Right? We, we are called, Peter says, to walk in his footsteps. Peter says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Right, so all of these things, we could go on. It, it's all exhortation and declaration, what God has done, who he is, who he has made us, and, and what we are to be in response to all of this. This is, this is God's grace in First Peter as we've tracked along here. That's the broad stuff, right? It's where we've been in this letter. And just to step aside for just a moment, just a quick word of application. You know, I've just, I've just hit a bunch of the highlights, uh, kind of blitzing through it. But, um, you know, it's, we've done this over two years in the midst of pandemic, in the midst of 
all kinds of craziness. And so if, if, I, if I'm going through these things and you're like, I don't remember any of that. Encouragement? Like, go back and reread it. Like, make that your homework assignment this week. Just read cover to cover First Peter. If you have, you know, first one, chapter one, all the way to through the end. And just revisit some of, the, some of the grace, some of the challenges, how God's grace meets us in the challenges that we have seen in this letter. That is the broad stuff. So I want to move on uh, probably more briefly. Does that make sense? God's grace. Okay. Amen. Secondly, um, the more particular bit here, uh, the more pointed answer that I think we see Peter hinting at in this text of what is this true grace that we're being called to stand in. And I think we see this especially in verse 13 of our text. And essentially, I think it's this, this idea that Peter is hinting at, the fact that we are a chosen people. Again, we, you know, we, we saw that explicitly back earlier on in this letter. But I think Peter is highlighting once again that by God's grace, we are a people who are not called ultimately to save ourselves, but we are called ultimately to, to uh, take, accept, believe, receive by grace and through faith what God the Father has done in and through Jesus Christ and has worked into us by his Holy Spirit. Right from the very beginning of this letter, uh, Peter talks about how those to whom he is writing who are in these five scattered territories of Asia Minor are, he calls them, elect exiles, chosen exiles. You know, cast, they're, they're outcasts from the world's eyes and from society's perspective, and yet to God, they, they are precious and, and chosen, they are elect. And, uh, you know, to me, the reason this is, uh, this is so good, that this is good news. Well, let me, let me tack it down. So verse 13, how am I getting this? You might be saying. Okay, so verse 13, Peter writes, uh, he says, after this command, he says, okay, stand firm in this grace in verse 12. Then verse 13, he says, uh, she who is at Babylon... Um, which, side note, I think is kind of a cryptic, kind of symbolic reference to those who believe in Jesus who are in Rome at this time. We could talk more about that. Maybe we'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But that's kind of, that's an aside at the moment. So he says, she who is at, at, at Babylon, believers in Christ in Rome, who is, who is, who are likewise chosen. Likewise chosen. These, these saints, these people send you greetings. So and that's why I'm saying I think Peter has this idea of chosenness on his brain as he's concluding this letter. And when you combine the idea of chosenness and you com and with God's grace in the scriptures, that is always a good thing. That is a beautiful and important and a needed thing. To me, one of the reasons this is, is so critical and the reason this is good news is because it means that we are not earning our way. We are not, you know, it is not because of our strength of grasp or our intellect or some attributes that we have or some virtue in and of ourselves or our perfect walk of obedience like we have that by which we are saved. The truth is and the comfort is that we are his 
by his grace, chosen into this. People who are chosen get to just receive the love of God and rest in it. This is a theme that we see all throughout scripture. I thought this week of Deuteronomy 7, especially, and I want to flip there, thinking about, you know, this is obviously early on in, in the story that the scriptures are telling us. But uh, this is Moses writing in the book of Deuteronomy. He's kind of talking to the people of God as they're preparing to enter the promised land. And what does he say to them? He talks about their chosenness. He says, for you are a people, this is picking up in verse 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 7. It says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. See how Peter is kind of channeling some of that in his writing. He has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Verse 7, and it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people, actually. But it is because the Lord loves you. Because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with his mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh the king. It is because of his love, right, that he chose this people. Not because they, they were mighty or some other really attractive attribute, right? Later on in uh, Deuteronomy 9, he talks about it's not because of their uprightness or their, their moral perfection that they were chosen, but because of his, his faithfulness to his promises and his love. These themes are picked up later on. I think this is largely what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2 when he talks about how we are saved by grace, not by our works so that we might boast in them. And so all of this, if it hits us right, kind of take all that, wrap it up, it, the, the, the good impact of all of this is that we would be a people with profound humility <laughs> who are deeply grateful for the grace of being his chosen, beloved people upon whom he has set his love. And we get to abide in that reality. And it means we're not being saved by our fingernails and what we're doing. That's good news, right? So question for us, application, everyone in the room, are, are, you, are you standing firm in your chosenness? Or are you beginning to kind of slip into the lies and thinking, oh, I got to earn this. I got to earn God's pleasure. I got to make sure I'm obedient, otherwise God's going to reject me and, and I'm no longer going to be his child. Are you standing firm in that good truth? That you're chosen not because of something you've done, but because the Lord is gracious and loving and faithful. We need that reminder. I need that reminder. I needed it this week. Every day, right? So we've seen these broad truths, this, the, kind of the broad answer to this question. We've seen the particular uh, answer to this question that has to do with our chosenness. Kind of getting ready to land the plane. Here's the so what. Where does this leave us? Right? How does this actually work out practically? 
How do we actually stand firm in our day-to-day lives, in our, in our discipleship walk? And, uh, and how do we do that when the pressure is on, especially? How, how do we do it when suffering is intense? That's been a huge theme of First Peter, is that, you know, the realness, the, the hardness of suffering. How do we persevere when the questions in our hearts get really big? Or when the temptations are heavy, we're being threatened to, to cave and to, to collapse, and the temptations are threatening to undo us. What do we do? How do we, how do we stand firm then? And I think the answer is together. We stand firm together. We, we need to be brothers and sisters to one another. We need to be a community. Prefaced on, of course, what God has done, right? All the other stuff that I've just said. But we need to be a, a community, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are speaking God's truth to one another, who are pointing one another to the grace of the gospel again and again and again. We stand firm together. Peter here mentions several other folks in his final closing here. You know, you know letters in the old days, they, they didn't greet at the beginning. They did the greetings at the end. And so here we see Peter talking in, in, right at the top. He says, Silvanus. Who is this guy, Silvanus? In verse 12, we see Silvanus is a guy that Peter refers to as a faithful brother. Peter's got a faithful brother. And Silvanus was probably the guy who actually just carried this letter and distributed it. He might have been the guy who was penning it on some level and and carrying it to all of these various territories in Asia Minor where, where Peter is sending it. So Peter's saying, this guy, I've got a faithful brother in Silvanus. Later on, he talks about Mark. We know from the scriptures, we piece it together, this is, this is John Mark that we see in the scriptures. And he refers to John Mark as his son. This is in Christ, right? The, the networks, the relationships, the richness that Christ weaves, weaving us together as a church, as a people, and as a community. He talks about, again, this reference to she who is at Babylon. You know, again, what I would take to be the the Christians, the church that is in Rome. And then, of course, he he ends by saying, greet one another. So you you guys have, you know, I have these people, you guys have me, all of this, we're all related, and you guys have each other, and there, there needs to be affection here. Greet one another with that kiss of love, right? Cultural, it was, you know, cultural in that day to have that, that, that kiss. We might make it the handshake or the, the hug or the fist bump of love. But it's affection in these relationships that the Lord has, has provided for us. And in these, through these things, we stand firm. When I don't have the grace or the hope or the truth I need, I need a brother, I need a sister, I need a friend to speak it to me. And I would bet you do too. So we have the broad truth in which we stand. We have the particular truth of our chosenness. And and we do all of this, all of this standing in the gospel we do together as God's people. Uh, The title of the, the message is Amazing Grace. Maybe you've kind of pieced it together as to why my brain went there this week, just all the grace that we've we've seen broadly and particularly in Peter. And uh, 
you know, I'm also, I'm a, I'm a sucker for hymns, old hymns. I like singing uh, good theology. I love the songs we sing, sang here tonight. It's beautiful. Um, but I was thinking this week, especially uh, about First Peter, about grace. I was thinking about the third verse of this, this famous hymn by John Newton, Amazing Grace. Like I said, there's so much suffering and, and struggle in First Peter. The, the ver- third verse of this hymn says this. We sing it together as the people of God. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. It says, but it's grace that has brought me safe thus far. And it is grace that will lead me home. I think that is ultimately what Peter is saying here. You know, uh, I think the people, last thought here, you know, the, the, these believers who are scattered in these five territories of Asia Minor, I think they probably, in my view, they were, they were refugees. They were cast out of Rome because of their faith. There are different perspectives on that, but that's kind of the, the angle I've taken on this. And so I think those guys could look back at Rome and being in Rome and saying like, oh, you know, like, wouldn't it be great to be back there where like, you know, we could, you know, that's our home uh, and we could be Christians and we could be there. And I think Peter is, is referring to Rome here as Babylon because he's reminding them of the big story of the people of God and reminding them that Babylon was a place of exile, right? Babylon was not home. And so Peter's saying, you know, Rome is, is, is just like that. We are still not home. Wherever we are, on some level, we are in Babylon. And it is God's grace that is going to bring us home. It is God's grace that has brought us this far. And we're coming home. He's bringing home to us, right? Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, Thank you, God, for your, your word in the scriptures. Thank you for Peter. God, thank you uh, that he was a man who sinned and struggled and had uh, all kinds of highs and lows in his life. And yet, Lord, you were faithful to him and you, you've used him to communicate truth for over 2,000 years now to your people. God, thank you that we get to continue to be those who live into this story of grace. That it is by grace that we have come this far. And we know that it is by your grace that we will continue on. Part of that is this meal that we are about to partake in. So be with us now as we partake of these elements. Amen.